Are you burdened for souls? Jesus shows us what it's like in this passage to be burdened for souls. He told his disciples, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So here we see Jesus showing us and describing to us the work of the spiritual harvester. So this morning as we look into this text a little more closely together, we're going to consider three things about being a harvester. We're going to look at the priority of the harvester, the perspective of the harvester, and, and the passion of the harvester. So in, the, in these first couple of verses, we see the priority of the harvester. So let me ask you another question. How much do you enjoy food? What's your favorite food? You can shout it out if you like. Did I hear cheese? Yeah. All right, cheese. Cheese makes everything better. Kind of like ranch dressing makes everything better. I heard somebody say steak. Yeah, I mean, there, there's nothing um, closer to a Texan's heart than, than steak. In fact, it, I, I, it's great faith that in the kingdom of heaven where animals are no longer slain, God is going to provide something better than steak for us. I'm just not sure what that possibly could be. But yeah, we love food. You know, one place that I find myself thinking and talking about food a lot is on the trail. When I'm on a backpacking trip, uh, after a couple days, we talk about food a lot because we, we're thinking about it all the time, right? So last week I took my son and a couple of brothers from the church. We, we went on a, just a short three-day trip up to uh, Chiha. And on day three, I decided and I announced sincerely that I would pay 30 bucks for a pounder's meal. Like if a drone could bring that down, I would have paid $30 easy, three times the price. Last, last summer, or maybe a summer before, um, on day five in Montana, all right, where we were just eating, you know, um, dehydrated food, um, by day five, I was up to 50 bucks for a hamburger. And I meant it. Like I truly would have shelled out 50 bucks if, 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 a, if a drone could have come down and, and, and brought me a hamburger. And I'm telling you, young people, there's some kind of a business model there to think about, right? Near the, near the AT somewhere, an app and a drone, uh, you could make a lot of money off backpackers, right? Who are willing to pay sky high prices for things like a burger. Well, I, I don't know if you've read the book uh, Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. Um, there's a movie's come out about this, um, but it's the story of Louis Zamperini. And, and towards the beginning of his story, he and, and his, his, uh, his plane gets shot down over the Pacific. And he and, and three or two fellow aviators, one of them died in the raft. Uh, so just two of them survived, but they spent 47 days drifting in a life raft. And I believe they still have the record for the longest uh, survival at sea, just drifting with no food on a life raft. And, and, and so they, they talked endlessly, according to the story, about food. And, and they would spend hours just thinking about food. As, as, and, and, and Zamperini, who was Italian, would, would do his very best to remember exactly how his mother made different ingredients, and starving men would just sit back, lean back, and, and you know, in, in, with the sunburn and, 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 and everything else, would just imagine the, 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 savor, the, the savorness of food. We know at this point here where this paragraph that Pastor Ken just read to us, where it happened, it happened in the context 
of Jesus being hungry. We, we read earlier, remember, he's leaning against this well when he meets the woman in the heat of the day, and the text tells us that he is exhausted. He is tired from his journey, and I'm sure that he was ready to tear into the food that his disciples had brought him. But he says here that he has other food. Now his disciples in verse 31 told him and urged him Rabbi, eat. But there was something more important to Jesus than immediately gratifying his physical hunger. He, he wanted here in this moment, as this Samaritan woman had left her water jar and gone to tell everybody about the Messiah, he wanted to train his disciples in this moment to care more for their mission than personal gratification. So he decided, rather than just to tear into that food to use food as an object lesson here. And so in verse 32, he, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, I believe that this statement was intended to provoke a question in their minds so that he could go deeper and get to the heart of the matter with his disciples. And so his disciples were supposed to ask, what food, right? And, and that would allow Jesus to explain to them his priority, his food, was to do God's will, reaching people with the gospel. But instead of asking Jesus that question, I mean, he'd already kind of primed them here with this perplexing statement, uh, they, they scratched their heads and they talked among themselves instead of asking him what food. So in verse 33, we, we see that the disciples said to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? And so Jesus just had to kind of get straight to it with him. And in verse 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, maybe you have experienced a time on a missions trip, or maybe you were on a youth ministry trip, or maybe a disaster response trip where, where you were so focused on the work and on the ministry that you didn't think about your physical needs. Can you kind of think back to a time like that? Uh, or maybe, maybe you're, you, know, you could think about a situation like that in the military uh, or maybe in the medical field. You're so busy taking care of somebody that your, your brain isn't even thinking about your own hunger. I remember being on a, on a medical mission trip to northern Iraq back in 2015. And if you remember back in 2015, very difficult time, ISIS had control over much of the country. They were based out of Mosul and were spreading. And so I was working at the time. I was actually here in Niceville, but before I was pastoring Rocky, uh, I was coordinating medical mission trips with Baptist Global Response. And, and I thought, hey, listen, um, uh, before I recruit a whole bunch of docs just to go into a, a, a situation, I better get up there myself uh, and I, I'm gonna help lead this team. Um, there were, we had people on the ground in, in Kurdistan uh, and they were in a place that was only about 20 clicks away from the ISIS front lines, and they had all of these internally displaced people who had, who had fled for their lives. And some of them had been really kicked in the teeth by ISIS. And so we went up there with the medical team, and, and, I, and, and so being that I'm not medical, 
um, once you get everybody there, my, my job was kind of the logistics, right? And to do the crowd control, which was a lot of fun when you got about three times as many people as you can possibly care for. So to kind of do a little bit of triage out there with the people and then make sure everything was running right. Uh, our doctors were working as quick as they could, but still praying for patients and that our, our pharmacy, which we had set up, uh, was working right, that we had people take, playing with the kids, that we were praying with folks, sharing the gospel, all that. Um, and, and so it was just, it was actually such a beautiful time, and, and the people were so lovely um, that, that, I mean, we were just going hard all day, and when we got to the end of the day, um, you know, we were so focused and excited about the mission at hand that suddenly around, you know, six o'clock when we had to shut, shut things off, we, we suddenly, re- I think we all realized, we're hungry. We hadn't had lunch. We'd just been going straight through, hard on, and, and, and we realized Man, we're, we're exhausted all of a sudden. We are, we are hungry. And so, you know, we went out and, and uh, had some people who had prepared a meal for us. And it was wonderful. But I think this was kind of what Jesus' experience was like here. He was so focused on his ministry to this Samaritan woman that according to the one pastor, he put it this way, his sympathy for a needy soul blotted out his conscious need for food. And so Jesus is probably a little bit sad that his disciples hadn't had that experience. They're in Samaria, a place they don't want to be. They had all run off to buy food. And I think he's wanting to try to help them understand what, what, is, what it's like to, to minister to souls and to be so engaged that that becomes more important to you than your, your own hunger. So Jesus said that his food was to do God's will and to accomplish his work. So what is God's work exactly? How do you define that? John Calvin explained that God's work is to, quote, advance God's kingdom, to restore lost souls to life, to spread the light of the gospel, and to bring salvation to the world, end quote. Well, that, that's what Jesus' spiritual food was. Later, in chapter 6, Jesus talks more about food. And, and I believe Robbie and, and, and Bill are going to kind of walk us through chapter 6. And, 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 and so here, he tells his disciples in, in verse 27, John chapter 6, Do not labor or work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, let's talk about food for a moment. Kids, did you know that food, the food that you have in your pantry and, and the meal that you get to eat at night, do you know that food takes labor and sacrifice? You, you might think that the origin of food is the grocery store growing up in our, in our society, right? But that is not true. Bob, Bob Hughes can, can explain to you that the animals die so that we can eat meat, right? Now, maybe I'm just a kind of a crusty Texan, but I, I think it's a good thing for a young man or even a young woman to go out and shoot a deer and then have to dress that deer and, and, and come to understand in an intimate way that what we eat has a cost, right? Meat costs something. An animal loses its life so that we can eat. Well, you know what? Also, the vegetables and the fruit that we require, that we we eat, require the work of harvesting, 
Now these days we have big old combines, right, in, in Ohio, in Indiana, that go through and are able to rake up lots of corn at, at one time. But back in the day, you're talking about somebody out there with a sickle, you know, individually harvesting each stalk. And in the Middle East, and, and frankly today, even in Central Asia, and in Palestine of Jesus' day, the main food staple was bread, okay? And if you go to these places in Central Asia today, uh, that is it. Like people think in terms, when they think of inflation, how much does bread cost? Because that, that represents life. And that's why Jesus said in, in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. It's me. Yeah, you need bread to live. That's your physical sustenance. I am your spiritual sustenance. So Jesus liked to compare things that we need, like food, to spiritual realities. And so bread is really important in the Middle East and in Central Asia and in Palestine in Jesus' day, but you can't eat bread without first harvesting grain. And so Jesus is comparing physical harvesting here to spiritual harvesting. And he is the harvester, and he wants us as his followers to join him in harvesting. He wants us to be harvesters too. So what is the priority of the harvester? What is he going after? What is he reaping? Souls. That's what Jesus cared about. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures, or another translation says, wins souls is wise. Jesus cares about souls, and, and so should we. Let, let's think about that for a moment. What, let's think about souls. Souls are eternal. Do, do you realize that? When you, when you spend time talking to someone, um, whether, whether it's a friend or whether it's somebody you bump into, they have an eternal soul. And, and so mankind's biggest need is salvation. There, there are all kinds of needs out there. There, there's, there. there are physically hungry people, and we as Christians should care about them, right? We have, we have people in our own community that, that don't have the resources these days to buy nutritious food, and we should care for them. But far greater than that is their eternal soul. And so mankind's biggest problem is not hunger or war or disease, but mankind's biggest problem is lostness. People's souls who are separated from having a living relationship with their maker, with, with God. Well, what is the value of a soul? Well, you think about that. Somebody, someone's soul is going to live for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. Therefore, their, their soul has indescribable Value, and I hope it has great value to you. Did you know that, that we know that God is only the one who can save a soul, but he uses us and the message of the gospel that he's entrusted with us. Therefore, we do have influence on our neighbor's souls and in our colleagues' souls and in our friends' souls. And so therefore, our priority should be harvesting souls. And that priority should be 
bigger than our own comfort or or pleasure or success in, in life or at work. Souls. Calvin said, by his example, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God should have priority over all bodily comforts. Jesus was on mission. He said in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's the mission he gave us, his followers. The Great Commission, Jesus said, Matthew 28.19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And the first step of that is evangelism, sharing the gospel with lost souls so that they may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he rose from the dead, so that they may have their souls cleansed of their sins and they may have eternal life through him. So that's our mission that Jesus gave us to, to harvest souls. Well, have we gotten distracted from that mission that Jesus Christ gave us? You know, the sad truth is that many Christians have, and and, and many churches have. Many many churches are too busy with programs. And if you look at the programs that they're doing, some are good, but a lot of them are actually, frankly, self-centered and designed around comfort for the members of the church rather than the mission to harvest souls. And we've got to constantly ask ourselves that question, right? Is most of our effort on making life better for ourselves and our own, or is it on seeking to make Christ known and harvest souls? Now, the truth is that harvesting souls isn't easy. It means making hard people, difficult people, a priority And it also means often stepping outside our own comfort zones, does it not? Well, I'll tell you what, that's exciting. When you step outside your comfort zone, hard things but awesome things happen. But it also means going to the Samaritans. So let's talk about the perspective of the harvester, our second point this morning. The perspective of the harvester. Jesus said in verse 35, Do not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is saying, don't delay, don't make excuses, the the harvest is ready. You may think, well, I'll get to it later. He's saying, no, the harvest is now. Spurgeon, preaching on this text, told his church, Some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, the Bible readings, and the prophetic conferences, and other forms of spiritual indulgence, would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and the needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves to work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes from their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working gives men spiritual indigestion. We need to ask ourselves that. You need to ask yourself that. How how much, what percentage of your 
time that you devote to church and let's just say Christianity, your faith, how much of your time is, is taken in versus giving out, giving out? And if you're just taking in and not giving out, you're, you're, you're going to get indigestion. You know, you're not going to be full of joy and, and purpose if your priority is not harvesting. You know, I, I was encouraged this morning in our discipleship class, um, listening to several stories, and, and not everybody had a chance to share, but just over the last couple of weeks, how people had, had invited neighbors and, and, and other people that they'd never had before into their homes so that they could be a, a witness to them. That encouraged me. I, I pray that we see more and more of that in our church. Um, I heard this week about some of our youth. Pastor Bill has, has encouraged them and challenged them to to choose one person, to ask the Lord to show them one person that they daily pray for, one soul who, who needs Christ. And, and I heard this week that several of these youth have taken that challenge, not just to pray every day, but actually invited some of these, their ones to our Easter Sunday service next week. And I hope that you will follow the youth's example. We have plenty of cards available in the, in the, in the, in the foyer. You can find them on, on your way out. Little invites. Where you could, I mean, this is the least, right? But, but you, could, you could go up to one of your neighbors and just say, hey, we'd love to have you at our, if you don't already have a, a church family, we would love to have you come and, and worship with us and, and hear the story of the resurrection of Jesus next Easter. That's, so Easter Sunday is a day that a lot of folks who normally don't go and worship in churches will entertain coming to church. So invite them. We will also have a Good Friday service uh, on, on Friday night at 6 where we're going to remember the crucifixion of Christ, the sacrifice that he offered for us. You could bring a colleague along, six o'clock on Friday night. But what Jesus is talking about here, uh, when he says that the fields are white for harvest, we, we need to remember that he was talking about the Samaritans. Now this is not what the disciples had in mind. When they thought of a Messiah, they were waiting for a military king to come and overthrow their wicked Roman overlords. They wanted a physical deliverer, right? So Jesus' disciples who are following him, who are figuring out that he's the Messiah, they're kind of wondering, like, when is this going to happen? Like, when are we going to, you know, when are we going to take him on? And when are we going to become powerful? And, and, and you know, when, when are we going to get this show on the road? And so they couldn't figure out what is going on right now. Uh, we're walking right through Samaria instead of around it like a lot of devoted Jews would do because of their prejudice towards the Samaritans. They, they hated them. They couldn't wait till they got out of there. Like this is a, you know, I, I imagine you can see Peter talking to, you know, talking to James saying, you know, as, as they're going to buy food, you know, man, we're, we're in a strange and foreign land. Um, you know, don't trust anybody. Watch your back. And they're not thinking about souls like Jesus was. But as Jesus was speaking these words to his disciples, there was a group of Samaritans right now who are on their way to hear Jesus. They, they had heard this woman's brief testimony and, and their footsteps, you know, they're, they're coming. They're, on, they're in route to check Jesus out, to, to hear his words, to, to believe and frankly, they believed in Christ much more quickly and more sincerely than the Jews in Jerusalem did. 
who had kept asking for signs. So we need to ask our question, ourselves the question when we think about, uh, am I a soul winner? Am I harvesting souls? Do I believe that the fields are, are white for harvest, as Jesus said? Um, who are my Samaritans? Who, who are your Samaritans? Who don't you like? Now, if you remember 20 years ago, um, couple, maybe 22 years ago, right after 9-11, it was Muslims, right? We didn't like Muslims. And um, there was all kinds of stuff going on. I had just had a chance to visit northern Afghanistan, the middle of the, the kind of the, the last defense of the Northern Alliance um, against the Taliban. And I had stayed with for several weeks and, and, and experienced hospitality from, from Muslims. And then I got back and 9-11 happened. And I remember listening to Rush Limbaugh one day and you know, there was a guy who identified himself as a Christian who had called in uh, to the show, and, 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 and he's saying, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we need to just go, go turn, let's go turn Afghanistan into glass. Let's just nuke that place. And I remember hearing the guy say, uh, one of ours, as far as I'm concerned, is worth 10 of theirs. And that was, kind of the, that was kind of the attitude, right? Muslims were the enemy. And certainly there are, there, there certainly were and still are some radical Muslims who are violent and, and dangerous. But I found out personally that, that many Muslims were kind and hospitable people and made great neighbors. They, they, they actually uh, 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 stuck their necks out numerous times to protect my family. When my power went out for several months, my Muslim neighbor hooked me up to his power, refused, me, refused for me to pay him anything. Uh, they really get this hospitality thing. They make good neighbors. And many are coming to know Jesus Christ today. He's revealing himself to them in dreams, corroborating the gospel message that they're hearing from those who've been sent to bring them the gospel. So God's saving Muslims. And, and there may still be some feelings, but I don't hear as much vitriol and hatred from uh, you know, the, the kind of Christian right in America towards Muslims anymore. Uh, now it's the liberals that we hate. It's, it's the woke mob pushing their Marxist agenda on us. And, and maybe you're frustrated with our society and our government, and, and the media. Uh, personally, I, I can't believe how fast our society has devolved in the last 20 years when it comes to the family and our identity. The Bible says that God made us male and female in his image. And I just remember in 2015 um, being in shock when the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage was protected by the Constitution. And the, the very same day, our president lit up the White House in rainbow colors. Do you remember that? And I remember just thinking, how did, how did we go so quickly from the vast majority of Americans believing that marriage was something, even if they weren't Christians, that was between a man and a woman, and now they're saying, you know, it's, it's two dudes or two women should be able to get marriage, married. And, and now people are worshiping the designer self instead of God. And they're saying that you can choose whether you want to be a, a male or a female, whatever you want to be. And, and I have no idea where this is going, but I can tell you it's not good. Okay? Uh, it's, it's not good. And, and now many people in our own society are trying to paint us as bigots and haters for simply believing the Bible. So how do we respond to all of this? Well, let's be sure that we're not haters. 
okay? Let's stand for truth, but let's do it graciously. Let's not give in to anger and repay evil for evil. More importantly, we need to look beyond our frustrations with our own culture and see souls in need of a Savior. One thing that I've learned over the years in trying to reach um, hard-to-reach people is that chaos often presents opportunity. And, And confused people are looking for truth, and they're looking for purpose and hope. So in all the chaos that we see in our society around us, let's be sure to remember the souls around us. Let's look for them. Well, maybe you don't have a problem loving Muslims or liberals, but your problem is just loving the guy that cuts you off in traffic. And I kind of get that, right? Um, I I, I get amazed at my own short fuse uh, when I get cut off in traffic, especially if I'm on my motorcycle, right? And, And so sometimes, sometimes we can really get frustrated with just maybe some ungracious behavior around us. And Jesus says, don't hate them, Remember, those are souls, eternal souls. Your goal is to go share the gospel with the Samaritans. And and you better not try to share the gospel from a high position without loving them. Don't even think about trying to share the gospel with someone where you're up on your high horse and and they're down there and and there's no love in your heart. Okay, that ain't going to work and it will not please the Lord. So are you seeking to love the Samaritans in your life? Are you seeking to share Jesus with them? Well, if not, repent and look to the example of the great harvester, Jesus. We we read about his ministry in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. We read that Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when we, when we hear this verse, a lot of times we think missions. And that's something that that this church has a passion for, and I praise God for that. Um, uh, We we care about missions. At Christmas time, we we give the Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering. We have almost 20 families, 18 families, I believe, and two organizations that that we directly support. Most of those families have been sent out by our church. We're all about it, and that's awesome. And at at Easter time, we, we take up the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. I believe our missions team has has put a target on that of $10,000, and I hope you'll give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Um, uh, This helps support the North American Mission Board in disaster response and in church planting in in less reached parts of our country. It's a great organization. So let's pray for laborers, but let's make sure that we are laborers. Jesus is not just talking about places that are far away. He's talking about places that are all around us. The fields are white for harvest. There are people who have never um, had someone clearly share the gospel in a relationship where they clearly care about them and have invited them to, to know Jesus. There are all kinds of confused people in our schools and on our streets right here in Niceville. 
who need to see Christ, who, who need discipleship. And so let's change our perspective to recognize that, yes, even the Samaritans around us, are, are, there, is, there, there are people who are white and ready for harvest, and our job is to be harvesters. So we've talked about the priority, we've talked about the perspective, but let's talk for a moment about the passion of the harvester. Pastor Matt Carter wrote, when the gospel is clearly explained and faithfully shared, men and women will come to Christ. And let me just pause for a moment. That's not just like in places like Mozambique or the Philippines. That's, that's Niceville, Florida. Maybe you think, you know, this is such a reached area. I don't really have much of a responsibility. Listen, this is becoming less reached, okay? Uh, there, are, there are churches people can walk into, but there's a lot of people who are not going to walk into a church, right? And our job is to, to clearly and, and faithfully share. And when we do, not all, but some will come to Jesus Christ. Some will. Let me continue what Matt Carter wrote. He says that's the beauty of the gospel. It's God's good news. And God does a great work in the hearts of rebels, causing them to turn from their self-worship and turn to him in true worship. Well, what is your ultimate passion? what What do you think about when you wake up? And when you, when you go to bed, what is your ultimate passion? Is it your job? Is it your hobby? Is it your aspiration for the next great accomplishment? Is your ultimate passion about building things that don't last? Or is it rejoicing over souls saved? I, I hope you're passionate about the harvest of souls. Truly, when I think about it, I can honestly say that nothing gets me more excited than to see God save a soul that I've been praying for, for years. There's a a rejoicing in the core of the soul that happens. I get excited about other things. I do. I love adventures. Um, I love my family. Um, I I do. I have other passions, but I, I really don't think there's anything that gets me as jazzed inside in the core of my soul than when I see God transform a heart and a life, like when it's just a radical change. That, that's awesome. You're like reminded, there is a God. There is a Savior. The gospel is powerful. It's real, right? There's hope for anybody, for the least of these. And, and oftentimes that's what he does. He'll, he'll take the, the worst sinner, you know, the, the, the person that you just can't stand, and he'll turn that person into, into something beautiful and, and someone effective for his kingdom. There's nothing like it. God turning and and, and changing and saving lives. But let me tell you, those people who are the most devoted to the harvest, and by that I mean, let's think about missionaries for a moment, okay, but it doesn't only include missionaries. They can be passionate people, right? Um, And and by passionate, meaning they can get mad quickly, all right? They can be difficult. I, I was one. Uh, I, had the, I had the opportunity, the responsibility to, to, to lead and manage and, and, and oversee numerous missionaries. And they can be hard people. There's a saying my, my old boss used to say that, that those who go to the edge can be edgy. And they often are. They're under a lot of stress. And, and sometimes resentment builds on the mission field between sowers and reapers. So stop and think about that for a moment. Can you imagine that? 
uh, maybe you are a missionary or you're somebody who's been out there just trying, you know, beating your head against the wall, trying for years, sowing seeds of the gospel, try, trying to share with a very difficult pe- person. And then you look over here, or you read a newsletter or you see someone else doing it a different way and, and they're seeing all this fruit. Can you imagine that resentment would ever build over something like that or rivalry would ever happen? Can you imagine missionaries would do that? Can you imagine you might do that? Well, sure. I mean, man, we could apply that to churches right here, right? Kind of competing with each other, uh, resenting when another church is experiencing flourishing and growth, right? Maybe saying things like, well, you know, we do it right. You know, we we go deeper in the things of God. That's all smoke and mirrors over there. Well, maybe that's just resentment and rivalry in our own hearts between sowers and reapers. According to Jesus, we should rejoice together when he blesses with fruit. That's what he says here in verses 36 to 38. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Did you get that? So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So what Jesus is telling his disciples is is that, hey, listen, you're about to enter a time of reaping more converts because this was the very first Jesus movement that was about to happen, right? Uh, What we're going to see happen as we walk through John is a whole lot of people are going to start following Jesus and his disciples. It's going to be an exciting time for them in their ministry. And Jesus is saying this, remember there were Old Testament prophets and even John the Baptist who who sowed seeds that now you get to reap. So remember that. Some in the past, some of these Old Testament prophets, they sowed for their lifetime and did not see results. This morning as I was reading this passage one one more time, I already had the sermon ready, but um, I, I thought of Jeremiah. I thought of Jeremiah. You know, he was called the weeping prophet. He he said in in chapter 27, verse 7, he said, I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Very few people responded well to Jeremiah. In fact, Jewish legend has it that he was stoned to death by the people that he was prophesying to after 40 plus years of ministry. He sowed a lot of seeds but didn't see much results. And that, that's true with a lot of missionaries that go to unengaged, unreached people groups, right? There were missionaries like Hudson Taylor and, and others that went to places like China. I think about 100, 120 years ago, the, the Presbyterian missionaries were going to Iran. And, and they saw very little fruit, almost virtually no fruit. But today, many are bearing fruit in these places, right? Even in Iran where the house church movement is, is still flourishing and, and growing and, and maybe a million strong in terms of believers. Well, maybe, let's just kind of take it home for a minute, not just talk about the missionaries way over there. Maybe you have been sowing into your children for many years and you haven't seen results. Maybe you have an older child who's not a believer and it'd be easy to get discouraged. Well, remember, the, the Lord's not done yet, right? It's not over yet. As long as there's a pulse, it's not over. Maybe, maybe you've been sowing into your kid and you're just not seeing much, right? You're faithfully having devotions, you're sharing the gospel, 
maybe your, your, your high schooler goes off to youth camp and, and comes home and says, Mom and Dad, I got saved. So what do you do? do you, I, I hope you rejoice. But maybe there's a little voice in the back of your mind saying, but I, I told you that 50 times. and Someone else told you that once and you just, the lights came on, right? What's wrong with you? Well, are you sowing and, and not seeing fruit? Let me encourage you to trust that God is the one who gives the fruit and, and, and keep hoping. It's not over. Are, are you reaping? Maybe you've actually experienced some fruit. Well, listen, don't give yourself too much credit for that, all right? Give glory to God and give him thanks for the sowers that came before you. Because it is God, ultimately, who gives the fruit and the growth. And that's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. So let me land the plane here with the same question that I asked you at the very beginning of this message, and that is, are you burdened for souls? And you know what? When you truly care about souls, when you're burdened for souls, you know what? It can be a burden. It can make life harder, at least more somber. You know, you go to a baseball game, and instead of just seeing a crowd, you see souls. And and you realize that some of them, many of them right now, are on their way to a Christless eternity. And we need to think about that. We need to remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about eternity. I mean, I can't even imagine eternity. But think about, you know, 3,000 years. Or think about 6,000 years. Think about thousands of years, the, the amount of time that the earth has been around. And then... (laughs) recognize that's just the beginning of eternity. I mean, eternity is millions, billions, trillions, and it's just begun. I can't imagine eternity without hope. And, and, And many of these people are heading there. We need to remember that and be conscious of that. That's what, that's part, that's part of the burden of caring for souls, having a burden for souls. And you look around and you see people who may be laughing at a joke or enjoying the game but they're lost. They're in trouble. And, and their final destination, unless the Lord saves them, is, is hell. And, and we who are strong on the sovereignty of God's side should never say, well, it's up to God to change their hearts. You know, there's nothing I can do. No. He said, go therefore and make disciples of the nations. Uh, it's our responsibility to proclaim. And there's, there's some stuff we could get into in the Old Testament that talks about blood guilt even. If you got a relationship with somebody and you got their ear and you never share the gospel with them, that's on you. Or at least partially on you. The fact that you haven't shared, that's on you. You may have to look at them as they go. I don't know what that means. Okay? Um, I'm glad he wipes every tear from our eye because he's going to have to wipe some from mine. It makes life more sober. So we should pray for souls at a baseball game. When you're in line at the grocery store and that person kind of pushes their big old giant cart real quick right in front of you, right? Um, 
you should pray for their soul. Maybe they're a Samaritan. You should pray for their soul. When you look out on your street and you see your neighbors and you know that they're not believers, you should pray for their soul. Having a burden for souls means that we recognize it is our responsibility to reach out to those who are within our scope with the love of Jesus. Okay, and that is a burden. But let me tell you, that burden can also be a blessing. When, when, when you step out in faith, that burden becomes a blessing. I already mentioned that the joy of seeing God save souls, the absolute joy, the, the new life that you see in their eyes and, and coming out uh, you know, of, of their life experience is incredible. But I, I think of, of friendships that God's blessed me with all over the world. In European cities and in small villages in the Philippines and in Africa, throughout Central Asia, people that I could tomorrow, if I just showed up in their, in their house, there, it would be just, there would be such warm fellowship. I would be so welcome. Um, I would never have had that if I just stayed in my comfort zone, right? Seeing the power of God when you get into a jam and, and he miraculously answers your prayers, that's just awesome living, right? It's a little harder or a lot harder sometimes, but it's awesome when you step out of that comfort zone and you see God showing up, you realize, yes, this is real. It's not just something on Sunday or some, some fantasy I've got. This is real stuff. Man, that burden becomes a blessing. But more than anything, there's the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we're gonna have a time of communion now. And let me invite our, our deacons if they come on up as we, as we pray. Um, this is a time for us to commune with God. If, if there's sin, and, and one, of that, one of those sins in your life may be a sin of omission. Maybe you've slidden or, or, or maybe you've just kind of gotten into this place where, where you don't really care for souls. Well, now's the time to, to confess that as a sin and ask the Lord to revive your heart and your belief in the gospel and to, to give you that passion. For, for soul. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in, in heart examination as we prepare to commune with Christ and with our brothers and sisters uh, throughout the world on a spiritual level. 